From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Fort Collins, Denver, Colorado Springs, they all now accept a digital ID if a cop pulls you over. Durango and Vail, too. Today, the pluses and minuses. I think there's a view on the part of the consumer that there's a great deal of ease with having something that's just right on the phone, don't have to have your wallet. But at the same time, there are also cons. Then, why the pandemic has some state lawmakers thinking about immigration. They note that many frontline workers throughout COVID-19 were people of color, including undocumented immigrants, people who couldn't work remotely. And beefing up financial literacy in schools, whether it's lessons around college debt or retirement savings. The fact that this wasn't something that we were taught I mean, it affects my life every single day. Because of community support, Colorado Public Radio has scaled up its operations, delivering trustworthy information and music to audiences throughout the state on multiple easy-to-access platforms, with spaces for us all to share and embrace stories of hope, resilience, creativity, and joy. What CPR brings to your life is only possible because of financial support from the community. Many giving as Evergreen members, donating what feels affordable on a monthly basis. Add your support at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. If a cop pulls you over, more and more cities in Colorado allow you to flash a digital version of your driver's license rather than a physical copy. Now, that's convenient if you left your wallet at home. It's potentially scary, though, if you're worried about privacy. We're going to talk this through with a few guests. Russell Castagnaro carries a unique title. He's the state's digital transformation director. Hi, Russell. Hi. Thanks for having me here. The state patrol was an early adopter of the Colorado digital ID. And so Trooper Josh Lewis joins us. Hi, Trooper. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. And in a few minutes, we're going to hear from the ACLU about some of the privacy concerns that you, the listeners, have raised on our social media feeds. Russell, the governor announced this week that a slew of police departments would start accepting the Colorado digital ID. I'm going to run through them rapid fire. Denver, Colorado Springs, Thornton, Lakewood, Loveland, Parker, Thornton, Vail, Durango, Broomfield, Brighton, Cherry Hills Village, Morrison, and Windsor. Apparently, I said Thornton twice. Why not? Uh, Why is this needed? Uh, Well, it's needed because really the biggest part is that it saves lives, right? One of the most dangerous things, believe it or not, for a police officer to do is to do the traffic stop, right? The, The more time they spend on the side of the road, the higher likelihood they have of actually being killed or hurt, um, so that's a, that's a big that's a big factor for everyone. And and so this prevents, uh, or at least lessens the time that an officer has to be at the door. Is that what you're saying? That's right. That was one of the the goals that we had for this was that it, it had to enhance safety for police officers uh, because you know you could just have them. What, what are they going to do? Like handle somebody's phone? They're going to handle the phone, drop it. They're going to take longer. So taking longer was not an option. So we really had to make it so that it would significantly speed up. The, um, the, the, the whatever that the officer's doing, like some of them will just scan your license and do it that way. Some of them will, um, will receive it electronically like, the, like, like a state patrol does. So it's all about making it faster. Okay. And were there other goals in mind as well? Well, so there are a lot, you know, there's a lot of talk about digital ID nationally, um, like the MDL standard or the mobile driver's license standard. And one of the things that we recognized is that 
having a digital ID gives people more, more control over their identity, their security, uh, or their identity attributes, right, the things about them. But, um, but also there are things like when you're a police officer and you're putting the system, your information into the system, you fat finger people's names. You know, Some people are using touchpads. Some people are using keyboards. It makes errors. Um, people can drop a driver's license you know, and then spend the next half hour looking for it in their car. There, there's all sorts of things can happen. And this makes it so that they can do all that stuff much faster and much more easily, like, like boarding a plane. Just to be clear, this is not merely a photo of both sides of your ID that you can keep in your photo roll. You've got to get this kind of verified in an app. That's right. So the My Colorado app, um, if you have a state ID or a driver's license issued by the Department of Revenue, you can use the app to um, scan the back of it, do a selfie, and it verifies who you are with the DMV and then gives you a version of the application that you can do either visual visual um, inspection so you can show it to someone, touch it, you can zoom in on all the on the in- interesting attributes and stuff, or you can share that information electronically um, without even showing it to them. Yeah, and I'm so curious how the State Patrol is using this. So are you having people pulled over transmit it, or are you kind of scanning the phone, I don't know, through the window or something like that, Trooper? Sure. So the the system that we have set up is basically a QR code. Uh, Every individual trooper has their own unique QR code. And so if somebody that we've stopped has this uh, this digital ID set up, what they'll do with their phone is take a picture um, through the app of this QR code, which then allows us to have access to their digital ID on our computer back in our car. So it's a it's another website that basically we have open. It gives us the same information that we would get on the driver's license, but it's literally as fast as take a picture of the QR code, my individual one. So now the system knows I get to have access, me as an individual officer versus the entire agency. I have access to their information back in my car. I don't need to handle their driver's license. I'm never going to take their phone. And it can get the process going much faster because it's all waiting for me by the time I get back to my car. We've actually seen a reduction in traffic stops by about 10% or so for folks who have this digital ID. A reduction in traffic stops. What do you mean? The time. The time of the time. traffic stop. Okay. Apologies. Our listeners had a lot of privacy-related questions, so I connected with the American Civil Liberties Union. Denise Maez is public policy director for the Colorado chapter. Let's listen to this interview for a few minutes, and then I, I'm going to have you both comment on the back end. I think there's a view on the part of the consumer that it's there's a great deal of ease with having something that's just right on the phone, don't have to have your wallet, don't have to have the plastic with you. But at the same time, there are also the, the cons. I mean, we hear about hacking all the time. There's been uh, pretty notorious ones that have come through the news cycle, even just this week. And then also um, there might be sort of the natural inclination to pass the phone as you would your driver's license. You usually give the driver's license, insurance, et cetera, to the officer when they approach you. And there might be that tendency to want to do that with your telephone because it has the mobile driver's license on it. You don't have to do that. But I don't think there's education on that. And I think that'll be a natural inclination. And if that natural inclination is okay, then you got to be mindful what's on that phone and what's going to be passing through on text messages or when the officer is looking at your phone for purposes of verifying identity. I could envision if the cops were investigating someone, 
And they could use a traffic stop and getting a hold of someone's phone, presumably under the guise of a broken taillight or something, uh, a scenario in which that is how law enforcement gains possession of someone's device. Is that conspiracy thinking on my part, or is that the kind of thinking you do as an attorney at the ACLU? Well, that would be very disconcerting because I, I think we would view that as a seizure uh, without any probable cause. And so I, I would hope that law enforcement wouldn't see that as a license to take the phone. Now, what I was mentioning earlier about the natural inclination for someone to just hand the phone over, then I think there will be that big question of, did the officer seize it or was it given to them? And so you raise another point of that's one of the things that, that, that folks need to be educated about is be careful what you do with your telephone and who you're sharing information with. And law enforcement is, um, you should not consider that to be acceptable in any way, shape or form. And I cite that as a hypothetical. I want to make very clear. But when we enter realms of new technology, hypotheticals become important questions as to how we behave. That's precisely the point, which is why there needs to be a lot of education around all of this. One of the pros, it strikes me, from a kind of legal standpoint, is that there are fewer possibilities, potentially, of people being fined for leaving their driver's license at home. Does that speak to you? This is, that's not a criminal offense, by the way. It's a traffic offense. But is, does that give you some hope? You know, you mentioned that it's just a traffic offense, but there's certainly um, fines and fees that always couple those sorts of offenses. So no that's probably no small thing. So, so sure. But think about the time when you're in an area where you lose service and then you don't have the ability to even pull up your mobile driver's license. But sure, that's one of the convenience aspects is you'll always have it with you. So I get that. And I think that's why there is the natural tendency to, you know, applaud and say, this is great uh, without the cautionary pieces of let's make sure we take this one step at a time. So is this the kind of development now that Denver and a whole host of other communities will accept this? Is this the kind of development that you keep your eye on at the ACLU that you might be prepared to get calls about? I'm just curious what your relationship is when new technology rolls out from the state. I I think so, or at least I hope so. I mean, I think, you know, in large part, the ACLU is sort of seen as the privacy freaks. You know, there's really not enough tinfoil for the hats that we wear on these sorts of issues. And especially, um, I think there are just so many avenues of invading our privacy, and this is just one more. And again, where are the laws to make sure that this invasion of privacy doesn't get out of control. Denise, thanks so much. Absolutely. Always appreciate it. Denise Maez, Public Policy Director for the ACLU of Colorado, recorded earlier. So let's unpack some of what we heard there. So Trooper, this idea of someone surrendering possession of their phone, even temporarily, uh, and then maybe being duped, uh, is that a valid fear from your standpoint? You know, it's something that we addressed in the basic of training when we started learning about digital ID. And I will tell you every trooper, and uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and say all the other offices, uh, other agencies that are are now utilizing this receive similar or the same training. We're never going to touch your phone is what it comes down you to. You are told not to do so. We do not touch your phone. We do not take it back. We do not handle it. And, and part of this, 
was the great aspect of COVID in that now I don't have to touch your ID, which I have no idea where it is in the first place as well. Likewise, we all know that phones are one of the dirtiest things that exist on the planet right now. So I don't want to touch your phone as well. Um, so when it comes down to it, it's, it's that simple scan, that picture. I'm not taking your phone. And that's how we were trained to do it. I, I hold up my QR code, you picture, no contact is made between us. Uh, Russell, if the phone loses service, do you lose access to your driver's license? No. It's, it's, uh, so if you've already um, connected, you've already installed the app and you have it on there, it will, um, it, it'll be fine in offline, offline mode. Okay. And then the privacy concerns about identification, is there a third-party vendor involved in this? Well, uh, there are third-party vendors involved in everything in government, right? Um, but this is potentially one more. This is, there's, um, yeah, the, like the... Um, there's a vendor that runs things for the Department of Revenue, their, their data systems. And we're using a couple of different vendors, um, some local ones, some, some consulting companies, you know, to help us along the way. Um, none of them actually touch an individual's data, right? So no, none of the, you know, the software itself doesn't have access to someone's, to your license data, only your phone has access to your driver's license data. It's not like stored in a centralized third-party database or anything like that. Now, uh, when the governor announced that all of these communities would be adopting this, uh, he said in the same breath, you probably want to still carry your physical ID simply because this isn't universal yet. I mean, it strikes me that this is fairly limited until it is universal. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we spent the first uh, the first year really educating and socializing the concept of digital ID. Because um, if, you, if you look back you know, 10 years when digital wallets started on the phone and digital banking, right? No one, everybody's like, you gotta be kidding me. I'm not gonna do that, right? So I mean, really... I remember the first time I took a picture of a check as a deposit into yeah. my bank account with my phone. That felt new and strange and you know, scary and wonderful. Yeah, and, and, uh, and this, and it's the same thing, it's like, is that even legal? So we had to make training programs so that the grocery stores and liquor stores and cannabis dispensaries would know, be able to accept it. Yeah, let's be clear that a growing number of businesses as well are starting to accept these digital IDs. Can you say how many Coloradans have signed up for this? Uh, so 100, over 150,000 have signed up. We have about 78,000 who have used it in the last year. Okay, so a sliver of the state's population. Right. There's a lot of growth here both on the, the users' end and on the businesses and the agencies that take this. Yeah, and, and last, last, um, last month, we went live with fishing licenses. And uh, we, um, I think 11,000 anglers pulled their licenses into the app so you can actually display your fishing license in it. And, uh, and we got, I think, 29,000 Signups <laughs> last month. So it's not just driver's licenses. Yeah. Russell, thanks so much. Russell Castanaro is the state's digital transformation director. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much. And Trooper Josh Lewis, spokesman for the Colorado State Patrol, one of a growing number of law enforcement agencies, along with businesses that accept a Colorado digital ID. You need a smartphone app to use it. Thanks so much, Trooper. Glad to be here. The pandemic has further exposed inequities in Colorado, economically, socially. And for State House Democrats, this legislative session is a chance to close some of those gaps, including around immigration, both legal and not. 
CPR's Benta Berkland is tracking those developments. Hi, Benta. Hi, Ryan. First off, how are Democrats drawing a connection between immigration and equity? Democrats say the pandemic, like you had mentioned, really laid bare a lot of inequities that already existed. And they note that many frontline workers throughout COVID-19 were people of color, including undocumented immigrants, people who couldn't work remotely. I talked to Democratic Senator Julie Gonzalez, and she says the pandemic really jump-started a sense of urgency to address some of these issues. And she says, for instance, for, for wealthy Coloradans, a lot of them weren't negatively impacted, at least financially, by the pandemic. But uh, undocumented immigrants specifically, she said it's still very real for them. Equity is at the forefront of our, of our agenda. For me as a legislator, how could I just say, oh, I really hope things get back to normal? Because for far too many of us, Normal just wasn't working. The before times weren't great for us either. Is there a particular bill, Benta, that illustrates this point? I mean, addressing problems further laid bare by the pandemic? Well, a, f- a few bills would expand benefits and, and allow for more benefits to go to undocumented workers. So right now, Colorado bans undocumented immigrants from receiving state benefits. And so there's a measure to undo that. And immigration advocates have wanted to fully undo this ban for more than a decade. So the original ban actually passed in 2006, and it had bipartisan support. And at the time, it was considered one of the toughest anti-immigration policies in the country. So it's taken this long to, to, to likely this session fully repeal that bill. Despite the fact that Democrats have held a good amount of power in that time. So I guess what I'm hearing is that this may be as much about undoing policies of the past as setting new policy. Yes, I think that's right. What else have Democrats proposed? Well, they want to remove restrictions that limit access to career opportunities. So things like getting a a license to practice certain occupations. So from dental hygienists, mechanics, that type of thing. Um, Another bill would provide more funds to help people who are going through the immigration process to get legal help. Um, So that could apply also to asylum seekers and refugees. And there's another measure to kind of address that that would create a Colorado office of new Americans. And the goal here for supporters is to provide kind of a central hub to coordinate services for immigrants and refugees living in the state. So this office would answer questions, help them integrate. So this would apply to a broader group than undocumented immigrants. Democratic Representative Nikita Ricks um, is the only lawmaker currently serving who is an immigrant, and she fled Liberia as a child, and her family was eventually granted amnesty. And she says an office of new Americans would have definitely helped when she arrived. I still have trauma. I mean, we left everything, abruptly left within two months after the school, came with one suitcase apiece, left our homes, our friends, our family, and here we were in the new land all of a sudden. You know, immigrants don't come here because they want to be here. We come here because we're fleeing war, famine, political unrest, and just looking for a safe place to be. I would note with this Office of New Americans, some Republicans in the House tried to amend that bill to make it clear that it could not provide any benefits to undocumented immigrants. 
How much opposition is there in general to the types of legislation you're talking about? Well, there is a big philosophical difference here where Republicans generally don't think the state should expand benefits to people who are undocumented. Um, I would say there are nuances, though, within the Republican Party. I talked to Senator Don Coram, and he says he would support allowing more benefits for people who came to the U.S. as young children. Uh, He's just not in favor of expanding that to all undocumented immigrants. And he says it's not fair for people who came here legally and went through that process. I also talked to Republican Senator Bob Rankin. He is from Carbondale and, like Coram, is one of the more moderate Republicans. And he says he's really been grappling with a lot of these measures. He says he does want to help everyone who lives in his rural mountain district, and that includes undocumented immigrants. I want those people to to, uh, not be just pushed aside and neglected. On the other hand, I just don't know how to deal with the fact that we have a lot more uh, undocumented folks entering the country, and I'm concerned about what other states are doing. He says his biggest concern is Colorado having more lenient laws than other states, and then that could lead to an influx of people. And he doesn't feel like the state has the resources to address that from housing or other services. It's so interesting because I remember a decade or so ago, Democrats in passing some of these strict immigration measures, saying, we want to deter people from coming here. So now it's Republicans that are saying that message. Are there any immigration-related bills that have, like, some common ground between the parties? Yes. There was a measure that got some bipartisan support that removes the term illegal alien from state documents and contracts. And it would replace that term with worker without authorization. And then the legislature unanimously passed a bill that would expand an existing law. And the law says it's a crime to threaten or extort someone because of their immigration status. Okay, so some common ground with those. If Democrats who are in the majority pass the bills we've been talking about, how significant will it be, Benta, compared to, uh, you know, what the legislature normally does on immigration, which, by the way, is often a federal issue, you know? Right. I, I think it would be significant, especially for advocates who've wanted to repeal this stricter law from 2006. This session, it would finally be fully repealed. But that doesn't mean Colorado hasn't already been, been working on this issue where they can. Um, so the state repealed a show-me-your-papers style law. And so that law required police to report suspected undocumented immigrants to ICE. The state also passed a law to allow undocumented immigrants to get a driver's license. And then children who grow up here but come here as a very young child graduate from a Colorado high school, they can receive in-state college tuition. That was a very contentious debate, and it took a few years to pass the legislature. What's interesting with some of these bills this session, they're going to pass. I mean, Democrats have the votes. And even though there's opposition, it hasn't really been the most divisive discussions of the session. Mm. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Ryan. CPR public affairs reporter Benta Berkland guiding us through the legislature's work on immigration this year. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour. High schools may try to prepare kids for college, but do they prepare them for college debt? I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC.
Social equity. Maybe you've heard that term. Maybe you're wondering, what does that even mean? Hi, I'm Anne-Marie Awad. I host CPR's podcast, On Something. This season, we're going to unpack that term, social equity, what it means for legal weed, and what it can teach us about creating a fairer society. Billions of dollars are spent placing a war on drugs instead of to schools, to hospitals, community centers. And so There's more in the first episode of season three of On Something, everywhere you get your podcasts. It is possible to get deep into debt before you can legally have a beer. Think of student loans and relentless credit card offers. And what happens earlier in life affects big stuff down the timeline, like qualifying for a mortgage. A bipartisan group of state lawmakers thinks Colorado needs to beef up its financial literacy standards, emphasizing college costs, credit, retirement savings, and home buying. Representative Kathy Kipp of Fort Collins is leading the charge in the Colorado House. She's on the Education Committee. And Representative, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much, Ryan. We're happy to be here. Sarah Starin is a policy fellow with the Young Invincibles, which advocates on behalf of young adults whose economic realities today are often much more difficult than their parents. Sarah, hi. Hi, happy to be here. And Nat Landon testified in favor of this legislation, which I'll say has no organized opposition. Experiences with student loans prompted Landon to get involved. Nat, good to have you on the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Representative, what do financial literacy courses look like in schools now? Well, that, that's a good question, and I'm not an expert on all the curriculum now, but I do know that when my own children were in high school, the course did not seem as relevant to them as you might like. You know, you're talking about like maybe investing in a stock portfolio or how to track your household expenses, which, yeah, it's all interesting. But the goal of this bill is to do, and this is actually brought to me by one of my own kids originally, was to say, well, what would be relevant to kids in high school that will affect their lives? So, right, things like student loans and student debt and how to pay for college and credit card debt, that type of stuff that's really going to impact their lives right away as they are leaving high school. I want to say that Colorado is a local control state. So uh, it is local districts that have the ultimate authority in many ways over what they teach. The state has some financial literacy recommendations now for districts, uh, but this is essentially an overhaul of those. Do I have that right? It's adding to them. What we have in Colorado, so I was a school board member for seven years up in the Pruder School District, and although school boards do have theoretically local control, the state does step in and say that, well, we think you should do a lot of stuff. What we do have are academic standards in 10 different areas, and social studies, economics, and then drilling down to personal financial literacy is one of those. So there are some standards right now, and that doesn't mean that as a local district you have to teach all of those things or learn all of those things. What it means is if you do teach that subject, that these are the topics that we think that you should cover underneath that. So that's what the academic standards are for. And why these subjects? How did you arrive on paying for college, credit cards, retirement? These were all things that were brought to us by various stakeholders as we went through the process. I started off with, well, we need to cover the cost of college and how to pay for college as sort of a ground level 
entry point into this bill. And then as I was talking with lots of other stakeholder groups, they brought to me and they said, well, we think that it's really important for kids to know credit card and credit card debt. And then last year, as the retirement bill was going through the legislature, they said, well, you know, it's really important for kids to know if they save a little bit now, it'll build up over time and it'll set them up for success to start saving early. And so we think that's an important part. And then another group came to us, the, you know, the bankers were involved in this as well. And they said, well, you know, it's really important for kids to understand that in order to build generational wealth, home buying is a really important step in that. So it sort of kept building and, you know, try not to manage, micromanage our local districts. But these are all things that seemed exceptionally relevant and that um, pretty much everybody's come to the table and said, yeah, these are really important foundational things that we think our young people should know. Well, one of the stakeholders is Nat Landon. And uh, Nat, uh, I understand that you didn't have the, the greatest exposure to financial literacy in school yourself, eh? No. And it it really is shocking to me because I'm an alumna of the FBLA, the Future Business Leaders of America. Like, I was a debate student. I was active in my school, and I went to one of the best schools in the state. I'm an alumna of Eagle Valley High School, which is in the top 10% in the nation. And to see myself coming from such a privileged background and a education that is funded by our vast ski industry, the fact that this wasn't something that we were taught, I mean, it, it affects my life every single day. I'm living in my, my, my childhood bedroom right now. I'm, I'm working from home. My parents are co-signed on these loans and they're tied into this debt as well. And we're managing it, but I'm really lucky to be in the position that I'm in, which most people aren't, and especially students of color and and students who are really, really suffering at the expense of this gap in our education. And so the debt you're talking about is student loan debt. And and what? What would you have done differently, do you think, if you had had this kind of education? I mean, I think about how in high school, I graduated in 2014, we definitely knew about the student debt crisis that had already been, you know, talking about in the news and in full force and and all of that. And I was just so excited to get an education and to, to open opportunities for me because, you know, colleges are advertised to young aspiring educational students like like you know coffee is Hmm. i mean and so we're told yeah you need to go to college because it's going to better your life it's going to increase your income it's going to increase the length of life that you live because you're able to do and experience so much stuff but then they're like oh here, you got to just fill out the FAFSA. And then if you can't, we'll figure it out after that. Well, you know, I owe pretty much a mortgage to Sally Mae. And uh, it's not going anywhere away anytime soon. And so for now, I work from home and I drive a car that's not suited for the winters. I'm so glad you articulated this because it sent me back to that time before I was accepted into college. And in my young, inexperienced mind, 
all of the focus was on the exuberance of going to college. Very little of it was on the, how are we going to pay for this? Now, I know my parents felt very differently, but um, I so appreciate that perspective. So you mentioned FAFSA. There's also the state version CAFSA. And these are the kind of gateway applications to college grants and loans. And I just want to point out that this legislation proposed in the state legislature actually encourages more adoption of the FAFSA and CAFSA forms. Sarah Sterren from Young Invincibles, why is that particularly important in Colorado? Well, I think the reason it's really important in Colorado is because we actually lag behind a lot of the national standards and national completion rates as it relates to FAFSA. And this severely impacts the amount of federal dollars that we're able to get in aid that then gets trickled down to students. So I think an important snapshot that shows the impact of this issue is that in 2016, due to our low rate of FAFSA completion, we left over $50 million of potential federal aid on the table. And that circles back in. That, that is money that people now may have had to take out private loans to compensate for money they didn't get because they didn't know. Wow. They didn't know that that money was on the table for them. They didn't know that this is what the process is. You know, I think Nat, Nat brought up a great point that we get told, if you want to go to college, if you have a passion, if you have a dream, there's money out there that can help you get there, help you get to the finish line. But we're not really told how to navigate that process, where that money is, where it comes from, and what are the steps that we can do as students and families and communities to help people get there. And so this bipartisan package on financial literacy would indeed underscore that more students complete FAFSA and CAFSA and not leave money on the table. What an important point that if you do Can that, mention... there's commensurate debt as a result. Representative, go ahead. Yeah, well, I wanted to mention one other thing. So, but, but before you even get to taking out loans, I mean, one of the things that we want to talk about is the cost of college. How much does it cost you to go to college? Maybe you should be starting not at a four-year university, but at a community college. Maybe if you have an option to live at home, you could consider doing that. Maybe you want to understand the difference between public schools and for-profit schools, right? There are so many different variables that can affect how much it's going to cost you to go to college and get the education that you need to succeed. So, you know, there's a whole range of variables and there's a whole lot of opportunities to help fund education outside of, you know, FAFSA and CASPA too, although those are two really important stepping stones. So I just, you know, want to make sure that we're covering the entire range of why people have so much debt. Well, let's broaden that even further. I mean, there are some for whom college isn't the path. Maybe it's a technical school or maybe it's, uh, you know, shadowing or something like that, an apprenticeship. Absolutely. Um, Certifications, right? There's a lot of kids who it might not be the right choice. You might want to become an electrician or a plumber. And we actually have had a shortage of tradespeople in our state for a while, even prior to the pandemic. So we want to make sure that people find the path that's right for them and are able to follow it. And there are lots of opportunities to be able to do all those things. And we want to make sure that people have a reasonable cost option of following whatever their path is. So just from my experience from, you know, being a public school student my entire life, one, this is the first time I've ever heard of CAFSA. I've never heard of that. And because of that, you know, I grew up in a upper middle class family. I didn't get much FAFSA aid, but we also were still reeling from the 2008 financial crisis. And so my parents couldn't finance my education either. And so it breaks my heart to see how much money is being left on the table when 
I didn't know my options. I didn't know that CAFSA existed. I decided, you know what? I, I'm not getting enough federal aid to justify some of this work. I'm going to go and seek a private education. And that was an awful decision when mm. it came to my finances. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are talking about a piece of legislation moving through the state capitol that would refresh, reboot financial literacy standards in Colorado's K-12 schools. Um, so, Sarah Starin, I wonder if you'd reflect on the idea that parents had a very different economic experience in this country, perhaps, than their kids, and that emerging from the pandemic my goodness, I can't fathom what it would be to be going to college or graduating right now. Do you think there's like a generational misunderstanding sometimes? I think at times. I think also what we hear a lot from members that we work with in our network is that there are many people that, you know, don't fall into the categories of having parents who have gone through the higher education process before or are familiar with filling out some of these forms and navigating just the questions and the questions that we've been talking about today. Where do I want to go to school? What's the difference between a trade school and a four-year university? What kind of outcomes can I expect further on based on that? And we have a lot of first-generation students, immigrants, undocumented students who are now having to navigate this, like you said, in tandem with a post-COVID economy. And there's a lot of huge barriers. There's a lot of huge barriers there. I think for me, it really gets down to the base point that everyone is entitled to information that impacts them. And there's a huge gap of information that we are not providing to people, to students, to families, to guardians. And they're not able to make decisions that are informed. And and that's hurting Colorado. Representative Kip, there's something I want to pick up on that you said earlier, which is that some of the stakeholders that came forward were bankers. I remember when I arrived on my college campus, everywhere I turned, there was a stand run by a credit card company, trying to offer me a credit card. And if I opened up an account with them, they'd give me a pair of boxer shorts or a mug or something like that. I got the free knife. You got a free knife? Yeah, I think it was a steak knife from Sears, maybe. <laughs> right? That was, I think, my first credit card ever. Very but, yeah, no. You know, I, to what extent is the financial industry predatory here and actually part of the problem you're trying to solve? Oh, no, and you're absolutely right. And so there are predatory student loans. And that's one of the things we want kids to understand, too. If you're going to go shopping and take out a student loan, if that's the kind of education you've decided you need to get and you need to get a loan for it, understand the difference between the different types of loans, because some of them have been extraordinarily predatory and bad for kids. And that's not what we want. We want people to go into taking out a student loan with all of the information and not end up in a position. I mean, I've gotten emails from, from people that would break your heart, right? Like I've been paying on my student loan for this long. It's going to take me this much longer to do it. And I've never missed a payment. And still they owe, you know, tens of thousands of dollars and they don't know how they're going to get out from under it. And allowing people to get into that kind of debt is not responsible. Well, and in fact, there's a bill having to do with predatory lending uh, in the legislature, in fact, this year. Nat Landon, are you going to be okay? You know, to be honest, I don't know. I mean, statistically speaking, yeah. I mean, just from a point of privilege, yeah, I think I'll be able to get through this fine. I have my parents. I have 
I mean, I don't have anything in the savings account. I don't put anything into my 401k right now. But overall, it's it's just hard. And I think it's it's tough because where do we draw the line at predatory and non-predatory? Is it legitimate for an institution to give 10% interest on some of these loans? Or what are we doing to help make sure that people are, you know, taking out these loans in a way where they're doing everything correctly. I think that that's really one of the hardest things is I didn't know what I was doing. I just knew I wanted to go to school. And now I'm like, oh, well, my bachelor's degree is inhibiting my ability to get a master's degree because I don't want to take on more debt. I don't want to, you know, I my life ha has been frozen and I, I'm just now finally getting on my feet and I'm 25 and I'm maybe able to move out of my parents' house soon. Like that wasn't how I aspired my life to be <laughs> when I was envisioning this life of an education, right? Like I pursued an education in part because I wanted to go to school and stay in the structure of academia but I also wanted to have a future. And now I'm like, well, I guess I'll do 80 hour work weeks and take on contract work and organize when I can and do what I know how to do. But I'm still, you know, if I move across the country for something, I'm finding supporter housing before I find a space of my own. My whole life is evolving around making a four-figure payment every month. Well, thanks for taking the time. Nat, I appreciate it so much, Representative. And Sarah, thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for having us. State Representative Kathy Kipp is the lead sponsor on a bipartisan bill that proposes new financial literacy standards for students. Sarah Sterren is a policy fellow with the Young Invincibles. It's a young adult advocacy group. And Nat Landon in Eagle County is an advocate and community organizer. Student-on-student -student sexual assault is increasing. Now, some Denver high school students are part of a national movement to do something about this. They want school districts to more clearly define policies on sexual violence. But that's just the beginning. Here's CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine. Hermela Goshu was scrolling through her Snapchat one evening last August. One post stopped her cold. A former classmate writing about being sexually assaulted by a boy Goshu knew. Over three days, there was post after post about the same boy or sexual misconduct by other boys, even at school. One read, I was assaulted in the hallway and a teacher was watching and didn't do anything. This wasn't the first time Goshu and her Denver East High classmates had heard such stories. Angel Kroger remembered in her freshman year, a student alleged that a boy in a sports team sexually assaulted her. There was no justice served for her. Justice! A few days later, about 100 students rallied on Colfax Avenue to protest how schools and the district handled sexual misconduct allegations. We saw people from around the district noticing that this was true in their high schools as well. That's Lilia Scudamore, an East senior. She'd taken a class in constitutional law and wanted to look into what district policies support survivors of sexual abuse and why don't students know about them. 
Here's Hermela Goshu. People were coming to me asking, how do I report? How do I say this? How do I do that? And I was like, I don't know. Goshu, who sits on the student council, said girls of color especially approached her. Goshu is black. She says they didn't feel safe going to anyone else. Scudamore had read an article in the paper about two student activists in Boulder. She reached out. Fairview High School has benched its quarterback. A couple of years ago, two cases of alleged sexual assault by two high school athletes roiled the student bodies in Boulder. One involved a Fairview High football quarterback. He's accused of assaulting multiple girls on a party bus. The case that got media attention was really only just scratching the surface of how bad the problem was. That's 19-year-old Sophie Dellinger. She's a graduate of Fairview High. When students wanted to talk about the incident and ask for resources, they were met with silence. It kind of makes you really angry. That's Beatrice Sanchez, also a graduate. The two began intensive research, four months' worth. Dellinger says they found major gaps in the district's Title IX policies and the way schools handle sexual assault. They had no reporting procedures or grievance procedures available to students. They didn't even have a complaint form for students to file a formal Title IX complaint on their website. When their concerns to school officials didn't go anywhere, they filed a complaint through the Federal Office of Civil Rights. I think the binder that we had created was over 100 pages. The federal government ordered the district to remedy their claims. The two students then helped rewrite and edit all district policies on the issue. That's led to a new link on the district's main webpage for filing complaints. Staff got sexual violence prevention training. Students formed a group, BVSD Survivors. The district just formed a Title IX advisory council, but their work wasn't done. Hey, how are you? Oh, good morning. Back in Denver, the students from East High were luckier. The district's Title IX coordinator agreed to meet with students bi-weekly starting last fall. Together, they've combed through DPS's policies. They do comply with federal law, but says East High senior Angel Kroger. And then you read it and you're like, I have no clue what this means. And it honestly, it pushes away survivors from even wanting to make a complaint because you're so confused and you're like, I can't do this, you know? They'd like a step-by-step guide in plain language on how to file a concern or complaint. What does an investigation look like? Can a survivor change classrooms if the accused is in the same class? DPS's general counsel, Michelle Berge. There is absolutely more we can and will do so that it is clear, easy to use, people feel like they understand what their rights are. The students are pushing on other parts of the policy. Berge says the district tries to take 2,000 pages of federal regulations and make a policy that's correct, legally sound, and comprehensive. But you're losing the humanity of it. The students help bring humanity back to our policies and check our assumptions about what makes sense, what doesn't make sense. But both Denver and Boulder students say district policies are just the start. Calling for a change to what they say is rape culture. Students say the policies don't address the growing problem of sexual violence before it starts. In a Colorado survey, nearly 7% of students reported they'd been physically forced to have sexual intercourse when they didn't want to. This is for sexual violence. In 2020, this is A Boulder County health official told the Boulder Valley School Board that youth emergency room visits for sexual violence were up 64% last year. Students point to what they call a rape culture they believe permeates some high schools, a culture that allows some students, like top athletes, to get away with things other students don't. East High School senior Lilia Scudamore says things like catcalling, comments about girls' bodies, 
other sexual misconduct. These things aren't treated with the severity that they should be. Students say that culture normalizes the behavior. Hermela Goshu said some students don't even realize they've been sexually assaulted. And a lot of people that I know went through a like, oh my God, I was sexually assaulted. People are, are experiencing sexual assault and sexual violence and not even knowing that it is that because we're not teaching them that it is that. Students in Boulder will start getting that knowledge. A local nonprofit began teaching four lessons for all 7th and ninth graders on healthy relationships, dating violence, sexual violence and consent, and supporting a friend. In Denver, up until now, East students get some sex ed in classes and some consent education taught by nonprofits. But East principal John Youngquist, thanks to advocacy from several student groups, knows it's not the intensity as young people need to support their development. The school has entered into a formal contract with Project PAVE, a sexual violence prevention nonprofit. They're designing a four-year curriculum to get students connected to what healthy relationships are, what healthy sexual relationships are, what is a, a healthy approach to understanding sexual consent. Police believe the first assault happened. But for student activists, there's still a lot of work to be done. Boulder's Beatrice Sanchez. We still talk to people who don't even know what Title IX is. They don't even know what their rights are. We need to change. We organized a walkout at Fairview High School. Telling them what we need. We had a pretty awesome attendance from students. We also had teachers there. It was a couple of weeks ago to support sexual assault survivors after the former high school football star was acquitted in a sexual assault trial. We have today, as you've seen, drawn up a list of demands. Meantime, the trial of another former Boulder High School athlete accused of sexually assaulting a female student is in May. I'm Jenny Brendine, CPR News. And that's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for spending time with us, and thanks to our team. Carl Bielek. Allie Budner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner, with special thanks to Megan Verlee. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.